Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. All crazy martinis for you today. So grab a stool and buckle up. Uh, This is going to be a fun one. Let's start in New York City, Jim, where, of course, New York State, New York City itself, a lot of different restrictions during COVID. New York, of course, famously firing public employees, even healthcare workers for refusing to get the COVID shot and so forth. And now we've got a 180 for a very different reason when it comes to masks in stores. Remember, you had to have the mask and in some places you had to have the shot. Anyway, uh, Eric Adams, uh, this is according to the Free Beacon, on Monday instructing store owners to refuse entry to people wearing a face mask in an effort to crack down on masked robbers. Three years after Democrats repealed a nearly 200-year-old city law that banned face masks in public. Quote, Putting out a clear call to all our shops, don't let people in the store wearing their face masks, Adams said in a radio interview, referencing the latest New York City Police Department guidance that owners should require shoppers to lower their masks to identify themselves when they enter an establishment. And of course, they repealed an 1845 law in response to the pandemic. So, uh, Jim, just a couple of years ago, or maybe even more recent than that, you couldn't go anywhere without the mask. And now, of course, uh, because crime is becoming a bigger and bigger issue, you can't have the mask, which I think is the right move here. It's just uh, funny to watch these people and, and how they shift on a dime. Indeed, Greg, I'm reminded of maybe one of my all-time favorite Dennis Miller routines where he says, I know a lot of us have tough jobs, but I think the toughest job in America has to be the security guard in a bank in Alaska. You got 10 people coming in by the door. All of them are wearing ski masks because it's so cold in Alaska. Um, I'm also reminded, and I, I, you know, because like it's interesting, I'm almost surprised this didn't become an issue earlier. I'll try not to turn this entire segment into a transparent plug for gathering five storms. But I have my heroes trying to raid the bad guys. It's in a skyscraper in New York City. And I know that I've already established the bad guys know who the good guys are. So they need some way to sneak up on them. And I'm like, well, they're going to have closed circuit TV. And these bad guys are, you know, smart. So they're not going to, you know, just have no security there. And it dawned on me, COVID masks. That's a perfectly excusable way. That's how you're going to escape facial recognition technology. And that's going to be an easy way to work around this. So so I'm kind of surprised this didn't become more of an issue. I, I do think, though, that like it's going to clear. Like, it, we're reading the point where, you know, obviously to say, oh, you have to take your masks off when you enter certain stores. Greg, do you think this means the anti-maskers will start wearing them? <laughs> oh, you didn't tell me? That? No, you know what? I'm putting my mask on because I'm afraid of getting COVID and you can't make me, you know. It'll be, it'll be oh. fun to see how many people, like when the law turns on a dime, how many people turn on a dime? First of all, how many people who are uh, still worried about, like, honest to goodness, okay, so like, let's say you're you're immunocompromised. Let's say that you are genuinely afraid that running into COVID or something like that is going to kill you. You still have to take off the mask to show that you're not a robber, right? Is that what we're getting to? Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have to flash it when you first uh, walk in uh, so the camera can see your face just in case you shoplift later or loot or whatever the situation is? But uh, Jim, for, uh, way, for a while all- there uh, at, the, at airports, Greg, t- uh, the TSA line, they would, you know, everybody was required to wear masks on flights. But then to check your face against your photo ID, you had to take the mask off. I just yeah. I guess the hope was that you just didn't cough at that moment. <laughs> 
I guess so. But like everything else, Jim, uh, there's a diehard parallel to this because, of course, you know, a lot of people would say, well, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the riots got out of hand so much in the summer of 2020 was because people were wearing masks, you know, for every other activity in life. They weren't even supposed to be with other people. But for that one, because it was so important, uh, everybody uh, gave them a pass on that. And so because nobody could identify them. You know, the vandalism, the mob mentality got worse and worse and worse. And then we've seen it with these flash mobs looting the stores, whether it's in San Francisco or many other cities around the country. And it just uh, reminds me of the diehard moment where uh, Al Powell's going, they're shooting at the lights. They're shooting at the lights. And it's only moments later where Dwayne T. Robinson finally realizes, yeah, I think they're shooting at the lights. (laughs) Well, of course they were using the mask to help them commit crimes uh, to to loot things. And it just only took them three years to figure it out. Hey, you know, that's that's why you elect a cop in New York City. He figures this kind of stuff out quickly because he's a detective. All right, Jim, on to the world stage now for our second crazy martini. And we know, of course, about all the uh, ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine and and the debate that's uh, constantly brewing over U.S. involvement there. But let's go over to the other side of the world and the other major problem we face, and that is China's approach towards Taiwan. Ever since the the Biden administration's disastrous failure in Afghanistan, we've wondered, when is China going to try to exploit this uh, territorially? And the biggest concern is Taiwan. The question still remains. uh, But nonetheless, there is a tweet that uh, one of your colleagues tweeted on the corner at National Review Online. And he says, Zhao Xiaoping, Controversial wolf warrior author sponsored a resolution at the CPPCC, Chinese Communists, for China to set up a blacklist of Taiwan separatists to be killed during China's special military operation against Taiwan, which, of course, begs the premise that there will be a special military operation against Taiwan. And here's what the uh, uh, translated statement says. First, it is recommended that the state issue a clear blacklist of separatist figures in Taiwan disciplinary order. They will link up for a long time with foreign hostile forces to disrupt the great cause of the reunification of the motherland, create divisions, sell secrets, and hollow out industries. The real control core figures involved in the production of materials and publications related to independence and the real control figures involved in sole proprietorship, the source of independence ideology, the real power politicians involved in independence, and the head of Taiwan Island's electricity fraud industry collated and produced the Taiwan Province Separatist Forces Blacklist and made it public. The blacklist figures were ordered to stop all acts of Taiwan independence within a time limit and confess their crimes through open channels or voluntarily surrender. If these people persist in their wrong and continue to create division and cause cross-strait conflict, then during our special operations against Taiwan, anyone can arrest or kill them, not only without any responsibility, but also receive the Medal of Honor for promoting unification. So... Jim, whether this is a glaring, flashing red or green light, depending on how you look at it, that this is coming, uh, or whether the Chinese communists are just trying to really intimidate Taiwan, either way, it's really bad. Yeah. I mean, one thing that jumps out at me is the reference to an invasion of Taiwan as a, quote, special operation, unquote, which happens to be the phrase that Russia was initially using for the invasion of Ukraine. It's as if these autocrats all use the same playbook. Now, by itself, it's not shocking that the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and its top military advisors and propagandists would want to hunt down leaders in Taiwan, would want to hunt down anyone who is a 
uh, strong believer in Taiwanese independence and make an example of them to dissuade the rest of the Taiwanese people. But seeing it in black and white, seeing it written down like this does make it, it is unnerving because it makes it real. It demonstrates that, yes, this is indeed like literally part of the official playbook. And you don't write this stuff down unless you think you're actually going to do it. And I think we're all kind of wrestling with this question. Is China going to invade Taiwan soon? Is it going to do it a few years from now? Is it going to do it in 10 years? And you can point to various indicators that we worried about, you know, been talking about this for decades and it hasn't happened. So maybe that's an indicator that, you know, the status quo will continue. Uh, or there are various folks who point out, that, look, China's a lot more militarily, a lot stronger than it was even just a few years ago. That indicator is going in the wrong direction. And there are various folks who make the argument that actually there's a limited window of opportunity here, that at some point the demographics of China will make it harder for them to execute what I think we can expect would be a uh, not a simple or quick war, probably a very bloody war to conquer Taiwan, um, because almost inevitably there would be some sort of spillover effect, I suspect, regarding South Korea, regarding Japan. I'm not saying China would in invade all of these countries, but all of these countries are kind of unified in an anti-China uh, coalition. And I think at minimum, China would want to interfere with the ability of Japan, South Korea, and us, and maybe Australia too, to give assistance to Taiwan. I don't know whether that would include cyber warfare. I don't know if that would include trying to knock satellites out of orbit. You know, China would try to do something to impede our ability to help Taiwan. And I think you know, the Wall Street Journal has a giant report on this. That's like, look, we, we just, you know, you think Russia invasion of Ukraine is a big deal. You thought Afghanistan or Iraq were a big deal. You know, whether it was a direct U.S. versus China war over Taiwan or whether it was more of a proxy effort like we're seeing in, in Ukraine, that would just be a level of warfare that we just have not seen since World War II. We just, you know, it's just, it would be nuclear power against nuclear power, not necessarily using nuclear weapons. But as I said, it's almost impossible that China would not strike some aspect of the U.S. defense capabilities uh, as part of this, uh, as part of their effort to take Taiwan. And once they've hit that, you know, whether that means, do they try to sink a carrier? Do they try to sink our submarine? Like, you know, Whatever aspect there is, eventually it's very easy to imagine this turning into a shooting war between U.S. forces and Chinese forces. Obviously, we want to prevent that. Obviously, we want to deter that. Um, but when you see stuff like this, it makes it look like for some people in China, this is exceptionally real. and This is very much part of the plan, except we have no idea when. Hey, happy, uh, happy Tuesday, everybody. <laughs> as much as they obviously want to crush Taiwan, I've always thought that their more likely strategy would be to basically put ships all the way around Taiwan, basically choke it off economically, as opposed to going in and having to go through that that bloody process. Because if they did it that way, then it would be harder for the U.S. and others to say, well, Taiwan's been attacked. We have to get in and make this a, a much bigger war. So I don't know if this is just more of the propaganda arm, uh, more intimidation, or really just China saying, yeah, this is coming. And so uh, there's, there's not much you can do about it other than surrender Taiwan but I don't think Taiwan's going to This gonna, is gonna This is turning into Thriller Day on the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, one of my old friends I haven't spoken to in a while named Mark Henshaw uh, still works for the Central Intelligence Agency. There are a lot of retired guys who write thriller novels, but uh, Mark still, you know, at least as far as I know, still works for over, at, uh, over in Langley. And he wrote Red Cell, which was about a Chinese invasion. And one of the things I hadn't realized is that, you know, there's like the main island of Taiwan, and then there's several other outlying islands that are basically much lower hanging fruit for China. 
So I kind of wonder if some version of the salami tactics that they attack the island that is geographically closest to China and toughest for Taiwan to defend. And then they take that and they see how Taiwan responds. And then they take maybe the next island and see how much the U.S. responds. And each one is like, well, how many lives do you want to sacrifice over this tiny little island and this few hundred or few thousand residents or something like that? And then the question is, by, you know, if you do your if you play your, your cards correctly, you can end up with like half of Taiwan's territory before you actually move on to the big island. Um, so, you know, just a, it's terrifying stuff. But by the way, also, you mentioned this is a, all started with a tweet from uh, Jimmy Quinn, who's our colleague who specializes in all things related to China, and uh, everybody should be reading all of this stuff. Well, Jim, I'm sure if they started taking some of those islands, we'd, we'd draw a red line, and we know that <laughs> we never let anyone yes. cross those red lines. <laughs> On to our second phenomenal sponsor for the day, and boy, it's a tasty one. It's the Moink Box. Look, if you haven't had the Moink Box delivered to your porch, you're really missing out. Jim and I both have had this treat. You order what's in it, and let me tell you, if you have even the slightest ability to cook, you are going to love everything that comes in the Moink Box. Indeed. Several of my Moink stuff, you just defrost it, put it on the grill, apply heat. If you want to marinate it in something, you can, but it tastes good just the way it is. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should. You choose the meat that gets delivered in every box, whether it's ribeyes or chicken breasts or pork chops or salmon fillets and so much more. And remember, you can cancel anytime. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash martini right now. And listeners of the Three Martini Lunch get free filet mignon in every order for a year. That's right. One year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but only for a limited time. M-O-I-N-K box.com slash martini. That's moinkbox.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our third and final crazy martini today. And we were just talking yesterday about lessons learned from 2022. Part of it was uh, finding candidates that are right for the state or the district. And some of it is making sure you have good conservative ideas and being willing to go in and explain those ideas anywhere, even in precincts where you're not likely to do all that well. But if you can do just a little bit better everywhere, you got a much better chance of winning. Well, in Pennsylvania, we just had a Senate race, as we have documented very well. Uh, Fetterman uh, defeated Dr. Oz. But there's another one coming up in two years. Well, next year, actually. And that is uh, Bob Casey, who first won in 2006. He's wrapping up his third term. And by all accounts, assuming his uh, treatment for prostate cancer goes as well as expected, he'll be running for a fourth term. And now the question is, who can Republicans run against him? I think he's going to be a lot tougher to beat, first of all, than than uh, John Fetterman. But nonetheless, Doug Mastriano, who lost the Pennsylvania governor's race, is uh, very close to deciding whether or not he wants to be in this Senate race for 2024. He actually spoke to Politico and says he's uh, trying to figure out, praying about a potential 2024 run. And so he's basically decided that because he won more than 2 million votes in, in 2022, he's got a wonderful base of support for a Senate campaign potentially in 2024. And while he did get more than 2.2 million votes, he also lost by 15 points to Josh Shapiro, the attorney general, who two years before that had said uh, that the only way Donald Trump could win the 2020 election is by fraud. So, I mean, not exactly the most milquetoast, middle-of-the-road Democrat there. So, uh, Jim, when it comes to Bob Casey, who I think would be tough to beat in any environment, 
I don't think Doug Mastriano's the guy to get the job done. No, and I guess it, it's funny. I find myself in, in more more nuanced perspective than I expected to be. When Blake Masters said he was thinking of running again, my attitude was like, okay, what are you going to do different? If your plan is to just do the same thing you did last time and lost, then you're going to lose again. Please tell me what you've learned. Please tell me what you'll do differently. Please tell me what you will, you know, do that will be better than last time. And I'm not getting strong vibes from any of these guys. I think they're like, well, maybe I'll just be lucky this day. No, no, you can't. Luck is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. You need, I want to see the numbers. I want to see you're like, okay, I have alienated X thousand voters. Here's how I'm going to win back those X thousand voters. I don't think any of these guys are capable of this kind of digging deep dive and really honest, you know, hopefully brutally honest, critical self-evaluation of their past effort. I think they're like, oh, Trump is running. That'll help me. No, it's not going to help you. In Pennsylvania, you mentioned right. Bob Casey is going to be a strong favorite. Uh, Biden is running again. Biden won Pennsylvania narrowly, but he won it. And this was a state that Republicans, they kind of needed a near perfect, you know, set of circumstances to win, yeah, at least at the presidential level. And Trump did win it in 2016, but he did not win it in 2020. Toomey won it twice. And I think that's a good role model of the kind of candidate who can win statewide. Because Casey is a likely, you know, extremely likely, you could argue, okay, so renominating Mastriano isn't sacrificing that much. Casey's likely to get reelected, so the harm isn't that bad. On the other hand, if you could have a better candidate, then nominate the better candidate. Why would you waste? Why would you throw it away on Doug Mastriano, who's already demonstrated that he is radioactive and in an issue environment that was really good for Republicans? That really, you think about it, Biden's approval rating is low. Economic numbers, people's economic pessimism is high. All the exit, but this is not like pre-election polling where you could say, oh, it's uh, it's Trafalgar. I don't trust it anymore or something. No, the exit polls indicated that Americans were not happy with Biden and the state of the country, but they didn't trust the Republican nominations. So why would you go back and say, oh, well, hey, you don't like that guy before? Here, Pennsylvania. Here's even more Doug Mastriano. That food you refused to eat before? Here's another dish, even bigger. How do you like that? Yeah, not going to work. So I'm very skeptical, but I guess, you know, if by some miracle... Mastriano or Blake Masters or one of these folks who lost last time really can point to a plan to do better than the previous time, then I might be open to it. But I'm not counting on it, Greg. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. We'd love to have them listening too. Uh, thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us both on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.